Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. To maintain the strongest economy in the world, we need the best infrastructure in the world. President Biden touts climate action and infrastructure upgrades in State of the Union address. Law enforcement officials said their plan was to, quote, completely destroy the city. FBI disrupts neo-Nazi plot to attack Baltimore's power grid. Plus, Minnesota is not going to wait any longer. Minnesotans are not going to wait any longer. Minnesota enacts ambitious law to go 100% carbon-free by 2040. All of those ambitions and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And my Republican friends who voted against it as well. I still get asked to fund the projects in those districts as well, but don't worry. I promised I'd be a president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects. And I'll see you at the groundbreaking. Oh, snap. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. We have seen a lot of State of the Union addresses in our days, <laughs> yes. but boy, howdy, was that a thriller on a Tuesday night. Indeed, in his second State of the Union address on Tuesday night, President Joe Biden highlighted his major legislative accomplishments, including new laws helping veterans exposed to toxic burn pits and long-deferred infrastructure repairs and projects now getting underway under the bipartisan infrastructure law. Biden touted direct benefits to everyday Americans from that bill and the Democrats' landmark climate and infrastructure bill signed into law last year, the Inflation Reduction Act. Both laws have generated a surge of major infrastructure projects, domestic manufacturing projects, and thousands of new jobs, which Biden characterized as an investment in America's long-term resilience. The Inflation Reduction Act is also the most significant investment ever in climate change. Ever. Lowering utility bills, creating American jobs, leading the world where we're building for the long term. New electric grids that are able to weather major storms and not prevent those forest fires. Roads and water systems will stand the next big flood. Clean energy to cut pollution and create jobs in communities often left behind. Biden also chided congressional Republicans for opposing both bills, framing action on the climate crisis as a moral obligation. Let's face reality. The climate crisis doesn't care if you're in a red or blue state. It's an existential threat. We have an obligation, not to ourselves, but to our children and grandchildren to confront it. I'm proud of how, the, how America at last is stepping up to the challenge. And I'm proud about the fact that after years and years of complaining that presidents were not even mentioning the climate in their State of the Union address... We now have a president who is touting some huge accomplishments in that regard. Yep. And Biden also, by the way, called for higher taxes on the oil and gas industry, which hit all time record profits in 2022. And he criticized the industry for keeping supplies tight and prices high, exacerbating inflation as Americans struggled to afford energy and food. And in the middle of a war, something we used to call war profiteering. Because of those record profits, British oil giant BP this week announced it is watering down its climate pledge to reduce emissions by 2030 while increasing its investments in oil and gas. Who could have guessed it? Big Oil's record profits in 2022 have renewed calls to repeal billions in permanent tax breaks and subsidies that are given to the oil industry every year. How about we just repeal the oil industry? In other news, the Federal Bureau of Investigation announced this week the arrests of two neo-Nazis who the agency says were plotting to shoot up multiple electric grid substations in Baltimore, Maryland, in a racially motivated attack that they hoped would cause widespread disruption and spark a race war. An FBI bulletin in November warned of threats by domestic violent extremist groups to attack critical infrastructure to, quote, create civil disorder and inspire further violence. Since 2016, white supremacist plot targeting energy systems have dramatically increased in frequency. How targeting power grids somehow leads to a race war is kind of beyond me. Then again, 
I'm not a Nazi. Finally, with Republicans holding the U.S. House majority, climate action is stalled in Congress for at least the next two years. But states are picking up the slack. In Minnesota, Democratic Governor Tim Walz signed into law one of the nation's most ambitious climate laws, requiring the state's electric utilities to reach 80% renewable generation by 2030 and fully 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040. Nice. That's one. Just 49 other states to go. (laughs) For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I want to break free. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Ruach HaOlam. Blessed are you, creator of all who's created diversity, multiplicity within humanity. That was Rabbi Sandra Lawson, a powerful voice at the intersection of identities far too often and even increasingly marginalized in our society. We give thanks to you for the strength and resilience and confidence and contributions of my people, black people throughout history and today. And may we continue to strive for justice and equality for all people. And may the stories and memories of those who have come before us continue to inspire us to work towards a better, brighter future for all. Happy Black History Month, my friends. As we see alarming erosion in the rights of women, increasing anti-Semitic rhetoric and violence, and a growing attempt to erase the truth of queer identity and experience, Rabbi Sandra speaks from a place of intimate, first-hand experience, and in her writing, her teaching, her music, and online, she articulates a powerful, positive moral mandate for all of us to do better. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work at Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. Rabbi Sandra Lawson, inaugural director of racial diversity, equity, and inclusion at Reconstructing Judaism, is an activist, public speaker, and musician. She's also known as the TikTok rabbi. And we'll get into all of that in this conversation. Rabbi Sandra, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me. It's always good to spend some time with you, Paul. We have so many bad examples of the internet, but actually you're someone who are introducing a whole new generation of people to what it can mean to be a religious leader Mm -hmm. and a religious leader who shows up. Uh, for people in moments of crisis, offering a word of hope, a challenging word. And so I just want to say, it's so good to speak with you. And I'm thrilled and grateful for all you're doing in the world right now. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe you can give us, you know, some of the background of how you became this amazing rabbi who you are today. It didn't just happen. This is a journey. So can you just take us back to where you, one of the starting places for the journey for you? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on how I feel at the moment, I'll start here (laughs) because, you know, tomorrow (laughs) you might ask me, you get the same answer, but a different starting point. I think for many people, um, people come into our lives that can really completely change the trajectory of where we're going. Um, 
And for me, that was my friend Joshua Lesser. We're still friends today. Um, you know, and and he might tell a different story, but you know, um, I was um, a personal trainer. I was um, in route to get a master's degree in sociology uh, with the plan of becoming an academic. That was the dream I had for myself. You know, walking around campus, talking to students. You know. In my fantasy, there wasn't a lot of teaching, but <laughs> <laughs> and certainly no grading. But yeah, but there was a lot of walking around in a beautiful campus. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um, that's that was the dream, and that's what I really wanted. And uh, Josh hired me as his personal trainer, and uh, we became friends. Uh, you know, um, and he says that that well, first of all, I have to say like when I. When I met him, I had not had positive experiences with clergy. Um, my only relationship with clergy, with, with Christian clergy, who many of them thought I was going to go to hell probably because I'm queer. Um, but I didn't have a lot of relationships with, with clergy anyway because I wasn't religion, raised in a religious environment. Every time I encountered a religious figure of some kind, it wasn't a great one. And uh, I grew up in an era of three channels and the televangelist who were not very good people. <laughs> so when I met him, he was different. And now I realize he's not that different than many clergy. I just hadn't met people like him. And uh, I remember asking him like, you know, what kind of rabbi are you? Cause I didn't know much about rabbis either. And you know, he had a joke for it, but he was also a queer rabbi, like a gay rabbi. And I hadn't met, uh, I had met a few gay clergy, but not a lot, like mostly through like some of the MCC folks that I, uh, had met over time and they also tried to get me to go to their church and I wasn't that interested um but he says that I started asking more questions about Judaism and I also had a Jewish girlfriend at the time and um and that curiosity turned into going to his community um and that curiosity led me to down a Jewish path and um I was happy being a Jew in a pew. I really was. Still, I finished my master's degree, still planning to get a PhD in sociology. But I noticed that um, I had more of a, a pull towards Judaism, especially when I started doing activist as, as a Jewish person. And I started building relationships with other clergy um, who, well, around 20, 2004, um, Shortly after the Supreme Court said that, you know, people like me were not going to go to jail uh, for our relationships, many states had started to um, wanting to change their constitutions to ban gay marriage. And I, as an activist, I was just like, I'm not trying to get married. I'm just excited. I'm not going to go to jail for having sex. And um, I f quickly found myself on the defense of not just me, but other activists. And uh, I started working with other um, other clergy. Before I started working with other clergy, I started working with other activists. And that's when I learned about coalition building and politics. And I didn't like it very much. It was very hostile. And we were all supposed to be on the same page, but people were arguing about money and what was the right strategy. And it was a racially diverse coalition. And you know, many white folks had not spent a lot of time with black people and black people and many queer activists hadn't spent a lot of time with straight clergy or straight folks. And then uh, I got an invitation from a, um, a clergy friend of mine who's also named Paul. <laughs> and uh, he's like, why don't you come to this, like, you know, we're having a clergy, interfaith clergy meeting or something like that. And I was like, I'm not clergy. He's like, yeah, but you're Jewish and we need more diversity. Plus you're black and queer, you know, and probably in his mind, he was just thinking about boxes. I don't know. And I found that I was having many of the same conversations that I was having politically, but with clergy folks. Um, but everyone was trying to find common ground. Everyone was trying to find a way to work together. So like I, some of the clergy that I met, they were all Christian because at that time interfaith meant Christian and Jewish um, for folks in the South working on this stuff. Um, I um, 
I remember working with this radio evangelist guy named Reverend Love. That's all I remember is that's what he called himself. I'm sure Reverend Love thought it was going to hell. I really do. I don't think he I don't think he thought much about Jewish folks and I don't think he thought much about queer folks, but we agreed that the state had no business in our bedrooms. Uh-huh. <laughs> so him and I went to a college campus and started talking about this constitutional mem- amendment. And I was really good at um working partnering with other clergy talking about judaism and i wanted to do more of that and i started thinking less and less about getting a phd which i thought was nuts because i had planned out this road of how to do that and this other path of becoming a rabbi was like made no sense to me how that was going to happen and uh um from that moment to about six years later i decided to go to rabbinical school because um I was became less interested in getting a PhD and I wanted uh, to investigate this path a little bit more. And here yeah. I am. You come at this moment in America where we have just incredible vitriol and I would say active efforts at subjugation of black people, yeah. rising yeah. anti-Semitism, the attempted rollback of LGBTQ rights, especially around trans issues. So you come at this moment, honestly, with all of these identities, and you have a commitment to being productive and positive in the way that you interact. I mean, I'm just curious, like, how you manage to move forward in a time where it feels like so much of who you Mm -hmm. are is under attack. It feels like a a very terrifying moment. It is. And what I'll say to that is we've already won. That's the thing. We've already won the culture war. We've already won. And the people pushing back on it don't like it. Um, and they're trying Ooh, to make us move back to a different I, time period. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. The the victory is won. And what yeah. we're seeing is people like is are writhing and angry. Right. What I like about that is it doesn't make us defensive. Right. We're in a a stance of being of holding our ground and saying this is just the way it is. But what do we do? I mean, I'm going to Florida next week mm-hmm. um, to give a talk in in Southwest Florida mm-hmm. where they feel totally under attack. Right. The school boards, queer people. For you, as someone who who shows up in such a particular way, what is your sense of what's going on in Florida with uh, Governor DeSantis and and all the ways that they're trying to erase mm-hmm. black history. I mean, that feels, it does feel like a reaction to something that a certain part of the population is terrified of. Yeah. Like, I don't know much about Ron DeSantis until he ran for governor. And I know more about him now than I did then. And I, you know, I see him as somebody who is playing a political game with people's lives, which is really sad. Um, and what I see happening is that now when I said we've already won, if we don't stay vigilant and pay attention, all that can be rolled back um, and, and laws can be snuck in that um, people aren't aware. Of. That's how we got to this abortion mess, like right. <laughs> that right. people weren't paying attention. People were like, OK, uh, Rose, the Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and the Supreme Court has said so, not thinking there was a possibility that that could be changed. And so what I see happening is that I do believe we've already won and we we're still it's still a game or still a war or however you want to phrase it. I don't really like war language, but, you know, um, if we if we don't pay attention, if we don't vote, if we don't um, do our our responsibility as citizens, we can lose all those things and people will be surprised. Um, we have some of the lowest voter voter turnout than any other country. Part of that is because it's not a day off. Uh, it's not a requirement. Yeah. Uh, but it just saddens me and because many people think um, that they can't change the system. And also the system, our system from the very beginning was designed to privilege one group of people over another group of people, including how we vote. I mean, gerrymandering, instead of like, you know, democratically drawing lines, people draw lines so that they can win, yeah. you know, um, yeah. that's, no, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's politics. You felt like a kind of kinship 
with Judaism. You, you said in, in some other um, places that you felt liberated yeah, when you yeah. like, and that's like so powerful. Talk a little bit about what it means to show up in Jewish spaces that are predominantly white and often assumptively white, even though that's not the reality of global, global mm-hmm. Judaism. I mean, not to be patronized, but how do you help like the Jewish community really welcome and, and embrace the diversity that is within Judaism? So what's interesting is that, you know, as a rabbi, I spent all that years, those years of training, like, you know, for many rabbis, it takes five to six years to become a rabbi. A lot of that is language acquisition. But as a keeper of this history that's thousands of years old, that's how I see it. Like, it's my responsibility as a rabbi to carry forward this tradition that has existed for, you know, centuries. And because I know text and I know this history and I know what's written because I can read the written language. That's another thing. Not having access to the original language for many Jews or people can be challenging and people don't know what the text says. And so uh, having rabbis interpret text. Now that is changing because we are translating a lot of our texts into English. There's a wonderful website, if you don't know about it, it's called safaria.org. But when I go into Jewish communities as a rabbi or as an educator, or as a teacher or a representative of Reconstructing Judaism, I'm bringing this history of what our texts say about diversity, what our texts say about bringing in different voices. Like right now, I mean, I know when this airs, it'll be different, but right now we are in the tour portion called Yitro. Yitro is uh, Moses's father-in-law, and it's often translated as Jethro, which makes me think of the Beverly Hibbelies. But anyway, um, Yitro is the only Torah portion named after a non-Israelite, or we would say a non-Jew today. Um, and he changed, and as the outsider, someone who's not in the community, completely changes the judicial system in the in the Torah. Because Moses is like hearing people's complaints and, you know, fights and whatever. And he's litigating all this stuff. And then he's like, you can't do this. This is like too much of a burden. And I joke sometimes he probably wanted more grandchildren. But um, he helps Moses create a pluralistic democratic system that we still kind of use today. And if I was in a community right now, I would bring that text forward and talk about the importance of having diverse voices. Just because we've always done something a certain way or always seen the Jewish community a certain way doesn't mean that it can't change or doesn't mean that we can't have other ways of looking at stuff. So when people see people like me, I'm black, I'm queer, and they're really kind of confused about how I'm a rabbi, you know, I can tell them how that's possible. You know, Jews like to argue, but like for folks that like to bring up texts about why I can't be a rabbi, I have other texts that I can bring up about why I am a rabbi and how that's possible. Well, and and also I think that there's an idea that, you know, okay, you have to look a certain way. You have to uh, like, you know, have a certain gender or whatever. But I would invite anyone who has a question to kind of take some time, listen Mm -hmm. to someone. You know, with you, I just feel like you're a rabbi because you're a teacher and uh, Mm -hmm. I've learned from you and many, many other people have. And so I think it's an opportunity. And I do think, I think wider Judaism in America, at least, mm-hmm. is really actually, for the most part, eager for it. But it, I think it's change is slow. And my guess is that there's been a lot of um, perhaps hurt along the way. But I, you know, I'm just really grateful for the Jewish part of my family. I'm grateful for your presence and, and the widening, the yeah. widening and the invitation. Uh, it's so important. I just want to say about that, like, the Jewish culture in America is a microcosm of what's happening in the larger society. So the same challenges, the same, all of the same stuff that is playing out in larger society is also playing out in the Jewish community. And so for many Jews, someone like me becoming a rabbi is exciting because they see it as the future. And for other folks, it is scary because they worry about what it says about them, what they're going to lose, you know, um, and, you know, why someone like me is challenging for some Orthodox folks, not all, I mean, some Orthodox folks, I have, you know, I know a lot of Orthodox rabbis who completely embrace someone like me, but people who are not rabbis or who are holding on to a past, 
um, even if they themselves are not orthodox, but they're still lifting that up. <laughs> um, someone like me is scary. Um, but for a vast majority, this is exciting to see yeah. more diversity in the rabbit, more women, more people of color, more queer people. We need to take another break, but up next, more with Rabbi Sandra Lawson. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. Since 2006, important conversations, inspiring guests, State of Belief Radio, from Interfaith Alliance. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what role do physicians and other healthcare professionals play when it comes to advocating for a single-payer healthcare system? What are the main goals of Physicians for a National Health Program, the only single-issue physician-led organization advocating for Medicare for All in America? To find out, we spoke to the new president of PNHP, Dr. Philip Verhoeff. You know, our biggest challenge is the fact that the fight that we're up against is a fight against resources and money that outnumber anything that we have by orders of magnitude. You know, the private insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, for-profit hospital corporations, they have pockets that are so, so deep. And they will use those resources to influence legislation, to influence legislators. It's not that we're not going to win, but we're not going to win by outspending them, right? We have to get single payer by organizing all of the physicians out there to say, look, we're not going to participate in this system that actively hurts patients, that actively leads to thousands of deaths per year in this country simply by virtue of not having health insurance. I mean, that's crazy. We literally watch people die as a function of lack of health care coverage. So we're not going to get single payer, I think, until we can get the majority of physicians out there saying, we're not going to participate in this system. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Mr. Tom Conway, President Conway, is president of the United Steelworkers USW. We're talking about national security with relationship to manufacturing. The previous administration, when Donald Trump was president, um, they pretty much made it clear that we can't exist in a vacuum uh, when it comes to trade. Can you speak to us about that? Because it would seem that the former administration and this administration at least are in agreement on that, right? So this isn't this isn't necessarily Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative. You know, this is something where most Americans and most of our legislators, our elected officials, are on the same page. Yeah, I think for the most part that's true. There's been a bit of a sea change, even amongst the economists who touted a global economy just 15 and 20 years ago, have begun to see that, you know, it didn't make much sense and it, and it actually harmed countries. And the promises that were made weren't delivered. The promises under the original NAFTA, the promises of, of the WTO um, brought harm about them, brought, brought particular harm to the United States. We lost 60,000 factories and 6 million jobs. Any politician who wants to be a national leader in this country to think that you can't come together and come up with coherent policies about how to move forward, particularly with regards to um, countries like China and some of the rest of Asia and some of the predatory practices that are out there that are designed to take your markets and do harm to your nation. Um, you, there's no reason in the world that this is, has to be a partisan issue. And so 
I think the Trump administration, the former USTR, Bob Lighthizer, and the current administration with uh, the Department of Commerce and the USTR, Catherine Tai and Gina Raimondo. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. State of Belief from Interfaith Alliance with Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch. Made for such a time as this. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. I'm lucky to be spending time with Rabbi Sandra Lawson, activist, public speaker, and musician. How are you understanding the anti-Semitism, this incredible, challenging, and for many terrifying rise of anti-Semitism right now? I mean, I have literally talked to several people who are thinking of leaving the country and ironically, terribly ironically, some of them thinking about going to Germany because they feel it would be safer. How do you understand anti-Semitism right now? And maybe some ways that our listeners can be part of a mobilization to counteract anti-Semitism right now. So I hope I get, I have a lot to say about this particular subject and hopefully I'll remember it all. So anti-Semitism was brought to the United States from Europe. It was brought here. And as a Christian centric society, it's always been an underbelly. Many Jews who immigrated from Europe, America was a safe haven. It was the first country to grant unconditional citizenship to uh, Jews who came from Europe. Um, and, and for many Jews, uh, wanting to desperately assimilate into American culture because they were willing to like, okay, that that's the past and here now and be an American. And in many ways for those Jews, their assimilation is very similar to other European folks in some ways, but for the longest time, Jews weren't considered white. Um, and that changed, you know, in the middle of the, the ninth, the 20th century. Um, so the united states is a society that's dna is designed to privilege one group of people over another people so white people and whiteness evolves over time has evolved over time white people have more privileges and um our our our, our system is designed to privilege whiteness over darker skinned people our system our system is designed to privilege christianity over other other symbols other other excuse me other religions and um, if you understand anti-Semitism, you understand that when um, different times and different cultures, anti-Semitism rises. And Jews have always been a scapegoat for the problems in our society, always been a scapegoat for problems in all, in all societies. And anti-Semitism has also evolved where you don't necessarily have to subscribe to Christianity to be anti, an anti-Semite. But it's so ingrained in Christian societies that people don't even recognize um, anti-Semitic tropes. You know, one example I often use is uh, a college student said to me, um, I believe a Christian college student uh, in in the religious center of the college said, you know, I believe in the loving God of the New Testament, not the wrathful God of the Old Testament. And I was like, ow. (laughs) <laughs> and and in that moment, I don't think she had ever thought that there was something wrong with that statement. That was just what she had heard. And um, that sparked a, a different conversation later on with other people who heard that. Um, and it was just like, I never thought about it before. And there are so many anti-Semitic tropes. In a similar way, there's so many racist tropes that people don't even think about. Um, I also think that the Jewish community, the larger white Jewish community or, or white passing coded <laughs> folks who co- are coded as white in the Jewish community can learn a lot from how black and brown people experience racism. As a black person, I know racism exists in our society. For many Jews, they didn't think much about anti-Semitism. They didn't really thought it maybe was something of the past. 
black people function in our society knowing that it's a racist society. Didn't mean people are bad, but we understand that racism has evolved over time and that racism shows up frequently because it's a system. It's not just about individual bias. And uh, for many of my, um, my white colleagues and my white Jewish friends, um, to understand how anti-Semitism works on the right and on the left. So on the right leaning extreme folks, it is really hard to do any education on anti-Semitism because it is core to the belief of how they function as extreme right folks. It is the core of how, and I'm not talking Republican, I'm talking right-wing extremist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when anti-Semitism shows up on the left, which is where many Jews spend their time, education can go a long way. To edu like, I can imagine some people would have just dismissed that student that I mentioned, but let me give you some education. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I would never want to hurt you. You only said that as a student because that's what you were told your entire life, but now you're out with other people and you're getting a different perspective. And so that's kind of how I right. see yeah. I, I I think that, that that is really helpful. And, you know, it is um there's a way in which it feels like some people are almost you know, we we talk about dog whistles, but it's almost as though they've become explicit. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and pe and a little bit, you know, it, it feels more the mainstreaming. I mean, to have a uh, you know, to have someone who's essentially a white Christian nationalist be the Republican nominee in, in Pennsylvania, um, mm -hmm. it just, it felt like a very, it, it felt very intimidating. Yeah. And I don't think that, you know, I think, you know, nice, nice white Christian folks that would not want to be intimidating, but they don't, again, the education piece, they don't understand like why it's so intimidating. Just and to, to say, we need a Christian nation and what mm -hmm. that means to Everybody else, including me as a Christian, who's not the right kind of Christian, mm -hmm. you know, when you say we need a Christian nation, what you're basically saying is that everybody else is second class stat status. And and Jews take that really seriously, as they should, especially since, you know, while I would agree it has been, there has been a Christian-centric, you know, reality in America, we can, we can state that this country is not a Christian nation— and that that's a good thing. It's a nation for everybody. And we have, mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's something we have to claim right now that this is, you know, there, there, it was, it is not a Christian nation. We Except are not, I will push you on that. I mean, I agree with you and our system is a nation is a Christian nation. So I, I we, think that there, there has been a privileging of it. Yeah. And, um, and there is the, um, officially in the constitution, we do not have a religion. Right. Right. And so, you know, and so I just think yeah. like recognizing that and, and that, you know, president George Washington wrote to the congregation in Newport saying there will mm -hmm. be no one tradition that will be privileged. Right. Now in reality, we know that that is not, but, right. but it's also important to recognize that there were these signifiers in the beginning that actually we are better as a nation mm -hmm. that invites a multiplicity mm -hmm. a diversity that that is actually our strength uh it's it's the genius if mm -hmm. we have one of america that actually other people that all people are invited but mm -hmm. but you know i i agree completely hey, talk to me a little bit about how you're, you're you know we're in black history month mm -hmm. so so tell me how that feels uh to you in this 2023 black history month yeah, I mean, I always try to, like, on social media, I try to always frame stuff in reference to what's happening Black History Month. Like, when you're every day on my Instagram for the whole month, I shared, like, images and stories of different leaders. Um, and I think one year, that, that year, instead of showing the normal pictures of Dr. King, I showed the ones of him being arrested. <laughs> you know, until we actually embrace the fullness of our history, you know, the fullness of our history that, yes, George Washington, a father of our country, but also a slave owner. Like, right. I, I can honor both. And 
many white people can't <laughs> you know they they any any negativity about jefferson or or um whatever instead of like being truthful about the fact that he owned slaves are they own slaves is like ashanda like you shouldn't be saying that that's just bad like but that's the truth yeah and so no, if we don't absolutely. start talking about the truth and holding both truths we're never going to get anywhere we're going to be revisiting this again and that's what happens every so year so many years we revisit this we've been where we are right now we've been here before it just looks a little different I want to talk a little bit about how you understand the internet because you have really understood the internet. And one of the things that, you know, we're, I'm very concerned about, and I think you might know this is just how religion interacts with the internet and how, um, right now, of course, um, there's so much hate online mm -hmm. and people getting attacked online and, you know, specifically Muslims and Jews, are some of the most attacked online mm -hmm. um, for who they are. Now, how do you understand the way social media works in your world? And how do you understand specifically how hate um, kind of manifests itself on the internet? So, well, the, so like what I appreciate right now about the internet is I grew up in a time period where there was no such thing, you know, like, um, you know that I am I have boundaries online people may not see them but I do have boundaries online young people today I really am concerned about how they use the internet how they see themselves um you know because people like to show all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff and you know uh I I read an article um about from it came across my feed I think it was called the alienization of plastic surgery, how um, these are plastic surgeons calling out the cry that, you know, I skimmed these art, but like we're creating aliens by making people look a certain way and having other people aspire to look like that. And that's not normal. <laughs> um, and so um, I don't have children, but I would be, you know, if as a as, as, as I can, if I, I can imagine, as someone who's not afraid of the internet, I would I would want to teach them how to use the internet responsibly. And I think many I worry that many parents are not having conversations because they themselves don't understand the internet. Right, um, right. And, I, I, you know, I remember when I was at at Huffington Post, um, we had a group of young people come in uh, and we had these talks and we were, you know, it was part of AOL. And so there was this big group of young people and I was one of the, the talks. And one of the other speakers who worked at AOL said, oh, well, you're young, so you know all about the internet. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. No, you right. don't. Right. You, you just, this is like, you're in water and you don't even know you're in water. Yeah. And you don't know where the dangerous tides are. And you don't know, like, you know, that the internet was not built for you. Right. <laughs> the internet was built, you know, for other people and now it's built for money mostly. Right. And yeah. so and and the and, and the internet wants to track you. The internet wants to know everything about you. And and so it's just people yeah, I agree with you completely. Like part of what you've just said is like how do you show up online and make boundaries? And mm -hmm. specifically like you know, how do you, how do you, how do you inoculate yourself mm -hmm. against some of the stuff that comes at you? Because my guess is that you get some stuff coming at you. Yeah. I want to tell you this before I get to that, I want to tell you the story. So when I was at, when I was at Elon, there were two of my former Hillel presidents that were about to graduate and there was a bar on campus. And so to celebrate, I took them out and I don't know if I bought the wine. I don't know, but we were at this bar. We were like drink some wine and celebrate because they were graduating. And, and they, yes, they were over 21. <laughs> and um, at the end, we were going to take a picture. And, you know, they had, in, in my memory, it was sort of like the typical college picture, tongue hanging out, glass of wine. And I said, put the glass away. Let's just, just take a picture. And they kept trying to bring the glass of wine back into the picture. And this lady sitting, after like three times, this lady sitting next to them was like, she's trying to save your career or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Like, just because the internet is forever. And right. I already know folks who can, who rabbis who have been, because other rabbis have told me that they didn't get a job because a particular image showed up of the rabbi. And they didn't think that was very rabbinic. 
Um, so back to the other thing, when I started using, so I've, I've always been an early adapter to things like classmates or friendster or MySpace. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, in case, in case uh, yeah. listeners don't get that, that means she's old. She doesn't look it. She looks like she's in her twenties, but uh, you know, she, that means she's old. <laughs> and I started using those things because I part, partly because I moved around a lot and I always wanted to, you know, there was a, you know, like if you're a kid, if you're a kid now and you lose track of people, then you just don't care because this, I, you know, grew up before emails and there's, you know, and thank goodness for Facebook because I've been able to catch up with people and see where they are in their lives. Um, but when I went to rabbinical school, um, one of my, for the first year when I applied for internships, now I have to say, you can't, you, you, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom and inter, internships are, are crucial to the development of rabbis. And, um, because again, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom and being out in the field, working as a rabbi can like, you know, help you learn. And I was having trouble with that because people could not get past my skin color. And, um, um, there's, you know, stories that I could tell for days, but I was like, I don't want to graduate from the reconstruction for medical college and still have to explain to people how I exist. So I started to use the internet to teach and to sort of show people my experiences in rabbinical school. And also, so people would know by the time my plan was by the time I graduated, I would have enough name recognition, or at least people were got had gotten used to seeing me that it would be a non issue anymore. And so that was my initial goal for for using, you know, for sharing on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and over time, that has evolved and changed. Um, and but that's that's why I started doing it. So if my goal was to make sure I could get a job and to and to lessen the racism that I would experience. Uh, and so I stayed focused on that. And that helped me to sort of not deal with the other stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is a, actually, you know, because I was an early champion of the Internet mm -hmm. as a as a po possible positive mm -hmm. tool because yeah. the gate you talked earlier about like the three channels. Right. And the three channels decided what you were going to know. Right, right. And, and the three channels kind of like were the gatekeepers. And in mm -hmm. some ways that was comforting because you could, a lot of, you know, a lot of nasty wouldn't get at you, but also it limited your exposure to right. a lot. Mm -hmm. It also um, made a few people the producers of mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And now what you, you, what you did is said, I'm going to produce myself. Right. And I'm going to and I'm going to show the world and I'm going to introduce myself so that I don't have to rely on someone else to do mm -hmm. it. And that's exactly. a remarkable right. change. And, and I don't think people we're still at the very beginning of this technology. Mm -hmm. Like someone's going to come back and find this interview and say, oh, look how that, that's so cute. They did that with their chiseled rocks. You yeah. know, what I mean, like we're everything, you know, we're at the beginning of the Internet. The Internet is the most like significant technological mm -hmm. revolution ever to hit uh, humankind and it's going to change everything and already uh -huh. has. And so, but, and, and part of that is the radical democratization of who can do what. And mm -hmm. even though there's still like, there's still systems that are controlling it. So, so what we see now is that people like you can p produce yourself and get out into the world and people can learn from you. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing that very bad actors can do the same thing right. and get into people's heads and get into, you know, and, and, and find other bad actors and plot very bad things. And so that, you know, the internet, like it's a blessing and a curse and, and, but it requires us to really think about it. And I, I often say to religious leaders, when was the last time you preached about the internet? Not just saying you got to mm -hmm. get off the internet because, you right. know, and take right. a sabbatical. That's not enough. What about, this is the most important impact on a, Amer mm -hmm. on the world society. What is, what is the religious voice? When two, when, when 10 Jews are gathered online, is that a minion? I is, think so. But... <laughs> you think so, but, right. but others don't. And, and answering that question, two or three Christians are gathered online. Is Jesus there? Mm. I think it's it gets into what do we mean by our bodies? What does it mean to be together? You know, I mean, I so it really is like 
the question of what the technology means for religion and our and our theological assumptions or, mm-hmm. or our religious assumptions is just really exciting to think about and and uh, and underexamined, I would say, by by most people who are you know. Mm-hmm. I, I studied 13th century Christian theology at seminary, and and I can't. I don't even know. I can't say anything about it. But, you know, but I, I kind of wish a little bit more time had been spent because that was just when the Internet was happening uh, in the 90s. Um, so so give us you you started this conversation saying you, you've been intentionally positive. What are what what are a few things that give you cause for hope right now? You know, the same thing I said earlier is that we've already won. As a, as a black queer person who am, a, I'm a product of two parents that made the migration from the Jim Crow segregated South to, and found their way to St. Louis and met and had me and my brother, you know, and they were parents, you know, they, they, you know, their their parents experienced some horrors that I probably will never even understand. And, and they my parents shielded me from it. Um, I see the progress. I see that we are no longer that same country of my grandparents, thank God, of my grandparents' generation. And at the same time, folks, bad actors have found a way to keep bringing that stuff back, but just, you know, evolving a little bit. For example, the number of white extremists or white extreme politicians that like to say that they are experiencing racism just makes me crack up but they say that enough that people are starting to believe it like you know like marjorie taylor green who i don't think anybody on this call thinks takes seriously was on somewhere talking to some educator or some school administrator about how crt was racist against white folks (laughs) just like you don't even understand what the hell it is like but i do see the progress that has been made, and we still have a long way to go, um, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, I already forgot your question. <laughs> no, no, it's about hope. And and, yeah. and, and and I think that, you know, recognizing that things can change. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, the paralysis can set in and say, ah, oh, you know, but, but Things can change, but they generally don't change without a lot of people coming right. together to make yeah. a decision that we're going to change. I was going to say, too, that I know, like, I remember after the 2016 election, as somebody who'd been through previous, you know, elections that weren't so great, um, for the first time, I saw more people on my side of the line, you know, than on the other side of the line. And I was like, Wow. You know, um, it, yes, because of the, because of how our system worked, the person who got the popular vote did not win the election. But that wasn't the first time that it happened. But there were more people that agreed with people like me than I think ever before, and I I don't forget that. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's so helpful to remember mm-hmm. that um, we are we are not the. Um, Minority, we actually represent the the direction that the country wants to go right. in, and and you know there were polling just last year that seventy percent of America wants a religiously diverse country. They want a diverse mm-hmm. country. They believe that that's what America should be, right. and so we have to remember that that we're actually working for uh, an America that people really want to live in and want mm-hmm. to everybody. You know, treat everybody with respect. And this, you know, the the Christian nationalists and those who would erase history in order to protect some sort of, um, you know, delusion of American history, they're, they're, they're on the wrong side. And we have to right. just, you know, you know, and, and hopefully if we can invite them, like you invited that girl who said, I believe in the loving, you know, you know <laughs> Jesus, rather, if you can invite people to say, hey, you know what? You you can learn about our history and move forward with all of us together. Right. It doesn't require you, you know, getting shunted to the side. It just requires us having a circle rather than someone in the middle and the rest of right. us is surrounding them. You know, and so I, I think that um, what you're doing is just so 
so hopeful. Tell us your all your uh, social media channels and your website so that our listeners get a chance to experience um, you for themselves because like it'll make your day better. Yeah. That much I will promise you. I was talking to my uh, supervisor, the CEO of Reconstructing Judaism before this, before you and I started talking. And, you know, one of the things that she reminds me of is that my strength is in relationships. I like having relationships with people. I like talking to people. I'm the type of person, please pick up the phone and call me versus like sending me mass different emails that I can't keep track of. And so I'm saying this because, and I hope this helps your listeners. There's a friend of mine, I've sort of lost track of him, but there's this guy I know that because of circumstances, we became friends. In any other world, we would never have been friends. Like we really weren't. Like he's, you know, the straight laced white dude, button tie, Republican, you know, um, the, believe, really believed that they didn't know anything about Bull Connor and his dogs in the, in the 60s, you know, thought that, you know, we went from slavery to Dr. King and like to use the sanitized text of Dr. King. I'm saying all that to say this. We would argue about all kinds of stuff. And um, when Trump was elected in 2016, he sent me a message and he said, I'm scared. And I'm texting hmm. you because you are the only person in my orbit that I can tell that to. And I was like, damn, <laughs> I didn't talk to him for a long time. And I was like, wow. And because we built this relationship, because again, of circumstances put us together, he had somebody that he could talk to. All his other friends were like very different. So that, so I'm just saying like relationships are so important if we ever plan to change things. And I'm not saying to put the people should put themselves in harm's way and have relationships with people that are harmful, but uh, building relationships, whether they're online or in person, um, it's, it's so important. Okay. My social media handles. <laughs> um, Listen, that was a great, that is a great yeah. story and, yeah. and such a powerful lesson. You know, you could also like have just decided, sorry, I'm not, you, oh, you've never heard of that. Okay. I, come to me right. never, or come to me when you've had, you, know, you could have just like been dismissive. Instead, you tried to engage him with, mm -hmm. again, without you know, harming yourself or diminishing yourself. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And as much as we can do that, I do, you know, I need to learn that because I get mm -hmm. very like, what, you know, but, but it is really like that can make a difference. And all right. of us have learned at some point, none of us yeah. came out knowing everything. Right. And, right. and I might, you know, that has been my story. It's, you know, part of your story, everybody's story. We all need to learn yeah. and someone can help us learn. Mm -hmm. and help us grow. And maybe we can be that person who can help others grow. So I just yeah. love that story. Yeah. Okay, now we're gonna hear all the handles. You can find me pretty much any social media platform as Rabbi Sandra, so at Rabbi Sandra. So I'm at Rabbi Sandra on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. I have two Facebook pages. One is like, says Rabbi Sandra Lawson. That's my professional page. And my personal page is Rabbi Sandra. Um, all right. All almost right. every platform that I can think of is at Rabbi Sandra. At Rabbi Sandra. Thank you so much for yeah, talking for today on, on State of Belief. I just love talking to you. You're inspiring yeah. and you're as hopeful in this kind of conversation as you are in your all of your social media. I hope someday I actually get to see you in person. Uh, so we'll let's, let's try to let's try to make that happen we'll at some point. Uh, Rabbi it. Sandra Lawson, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Paul. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. 
State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is in production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member of Interfaith Alliance today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be talking with Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Joint Baptist Committee for Religious Liberty, which organized the movement Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I cannot wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. Think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.